A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The word of the Lord. And let the church say, Amen. Let the church say, Amen again. I bring you grace and greetings from the saints that gather at First Baptist Church, Pelham. To the dean, to the faculty, to the staff, to the students, thank you for being here today. Thank you for allowing me the privilege to stand in this sacred spot and proclaim the good gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today I want to talk to you on the subject of prayer. Prayer is distinctively Christian. Now you may think to yourself, wait a hot minute. I know some non-Christians who seem to pray more than a few Christians that I know. Men of Islam bow to the ground with their faces to the dirt, facing the east five times a day, and they pray. People of Judaism pray on a daily basis, not only for the peace and prosperity of Israel, but they also voice the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There are people of many Near Eastern religions who give an enormous amount of time every single day to prayer. Yet this morning, I want to tell you that prayer is distinctively Christian. Do you know that as Christians, we are the only people on planet Earth who pray in Jesus' name? There's nobody else who voices it in that manner. That phrase, in Jesus' name, is not just an empty tagline that we put at the end of our prayers because we don't know what else to say or what other religious statement to make. No, the name of a person carries essence and character, power and authority. You and I dare not stand before a holy God in the frailty of our own name, but we boldly stand before a holy God in the righteous innocence of the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus who is higher than any other name. And every other thing and every other name is under his feet. So we stand in his authority. We stand under his righteousness. We stand in his innocence and we pray in Jesus' name. Prayer is a desperate plea for communion with God the Father under the authority 
of God the Spirit, through the power of God the Spirit, until Jesus returns to rescue us. Let me say that again. Prayer is a desperate plea for communion with God the Father under the authority of God the Son by the power of God the Spirit until Jesus returns to rescue us. The truth of that statement is no better personified than the parable that was read for you just a few moments ago. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 18. In that parable, there are two main characters. There is a villain and a victim. The villain is an unjust judge. We do not know his name, but we know something about his character. He must have been the worst of sinners, for he neither feared God nor cared about men. Elsewhere, we are told that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is likened unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Apparently, this fellow had a little bit of self-awareness. He was aware that he did not love God and he did not care about men. If you had to stand in front of this arrogant, brash judge, you only had about one of three options. If you had enough money, you might try to bribe him. If you had some influence, you might try to intimidate him. But if you had no cash and no clout, the only result you had at your disposal was to fall on the mercy of the court, just to plea for his mercy. It's at this point that we are introduced to the second character of our story. She is a victim. She's anonymous. We're simply told that she is a widow. An easy target for victimization in that culture and our culture. Yet God defends the widow. In fact, in a place like Deuteronomy, he declares that he defends the cause of the widow. And he also declares, cursed is the man who does not look after the widow, who fails to give her justice. Obviously, this unjust judge had never read the Torah. He probably never went to Sunday school. He never really devoted much time to the Scripture, so he did not know what God said. But this widow, she kept coming, asking for justice. We don't know the particulars of the story. We don't know what had happened to her. We just know that she was a victim of injustice. And so she went to the only person that she thought could help her. She went to this judge. But he wasn't having anything about it. He was not going to give her the time of day. But that did not stop this woman. She went to him early in the morning. She was the first person that he saw. She went to him at noonday when he broke for lunch in the marketplace. She went to him as he was walking down the steps of the courthouse after judging cases all day long. She pestered the stew out of this man. She followed him home, and all the while she kept asking for justice. Please give me justice against my adversary. I don't know if she had Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, but if she did, she was wearing this man out on social media. She was telling anybody and everybody, I've got to have some justice, and this is the man who's got to give it to me. He has the authority to do it. He has the power to do it. I just need for him to do it. And this man said, because this woman keeps bothering me, 
That's a Greek word that means she is pestering the stew out of me. Because she keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice. Or eventually she'll just wear me out with her coming. That phrase is translated wear me out with her coming literally is the phrase give me a black eye. This man is fearful of this woman. Either he's fearful because he thinks that maybe she's going to pester him so much he's going to lose so much sleep over this woman that dark circles will develop under his eyes or better yet he thinks I'm going to really tick this woman off and she's going to punch me in the face. I'll see that she gets justice unless or if I don't then she'll just keep wearing me out with her coming. And that's the parable. That's the story. That's the story that Jesus told. You realize that Jesus used parables frequently in his preaching ministry. You know that a parable is an earthly story with an eternal truth. You're also aware that the word parable is a compound Greek word, para and balo. Para means alongside, balo means to throw. So a parable is a fictitious story that's thrown alongside real life. Many times Jesus would use parables. It's a story that he would just spin off the cuff. But it had a ring of reality to it. Everybody in the audience could see the story taking place. Such is the case with this story. But this story is a unique parable. It's unique for a couple of reasons. For starters, most of the time, Jesus left it up to you to connect the dots. If you didn't get the meaning of the story, tough luck. It was up to you to connect the dots. There were rare occasions when Jesus or the author of the text would give us the meaning of the parable. And such is the case in Luke 18. The very opening line, Luke tells us, Jesus told this parable to teach them to pray, always pray, and never give up on prayer. Whatever this parable is about, it has to be something significant about prayer. Because Luke tells us the reason Jesus told this story was to encourage you and me to always pray and never give up on prayer. This is a unique parable because the meaning is given to us from the outset. This story has something significant to do with prayer. It's also unique because this is a parable of contrast. It's not a parable of comparison. Most of the time in Jesus' parables, it would be a story of comparison where he would compare an attribute of one of the main characters of the story to a divine attribute of God Almighty. One of the classic examples of that is a story that's given to us in Luke chapter 15. We call it the prodigal son story. And in that story, Jesus compares the love of God with that love of that earthly dad. You remember the story. You know it well. You remember that it's the, it's the father who is looking not just for one lost son, but both lost sons. And when he sees the younger son come over the horizon, it is this father who throws social norms to the wind. He hikes his skirt, he tucks his tunic, and off he goes, and he makes a mad dash for his son. It was not, it was not customary for a father, a patriot, 
a, a patriarch to run in public. Yet this dad, he is so in love with his children that he throws the social norms to the wind. He runs to his son. He kisses him, throws his arms around him, orders for a ring and a robe and sandals to be placed on him to kill the cat and fattened calf because we're going to celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You can't read that story without realizing that's a parable of comparison. Jesus is comparing the love that God has for you with the love that this father had for his lost son. In our passage, Jesus is not giving us a parable of comparison. He's giving us a parable of contrast. He is not comparing God with the unjust judge. He is contrasting God with the unjust judge. However the judge is in this story, that's the opposite of our great God. God is not an unjust judge. No, God is very just. He is very loving. He is very benevolent. He's the opposite of this unjust judge. The reality of this and the truthfulness of this is that all we have to do is listen to the words of Jesus. When he finishes the story, he points our attention like a laser focus to this unjust judge. He said, listen to what the judge says. And then Jesus asked three questions. The first question, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? The second question, will he being God keep putting them off? Jesus says, no, he'll see they get justice and quickly. And the third question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? These three questions indicate that this is a parable of contrast, not a parable of comparison. The first question, Jesus just simply asked, and will not our God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? The implied answer of that question is a resounding yes. Our God will bring about justice. Now, what is justice? It's God's character. It's God's rightness. It, it is God's morality. God will bring about justice for his chosen ones. This promise that God will bring about justice is not a promise to all people. It's a promise to God's people. That God will bring about justice for his chosen ones. If you are in Christ, you've been chosen from the very foundation of the earth. You've been sovereignly selected by God Almighty so that you may do His bidding. You may be His child. Now, I understand that in salvation, we have a human responsibility. We have a part to play. I appreciate what one theologian said when he simply wrote, that God voted for my salvation, the devil voted for my condemnation, and I broke the tie. I understand the meaning of that statement. However, let's just be honest. It is Jesus who does the heavy lifting of our salvation. The only thing I bring to my salvation is my own sin. I give Jesus my sin, I get his salvation. I bring 
to him my rags, I get his righteousness. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a sweet swap of salvation. I mean, I give him the grossness of my life. He gives me the grace of his love. I got the good end of the bargain, don't you think? I mean, I give Jesus all of my despicable sin, and he gives me the beauty of his righteous salvation. So you and I do have a part to play, but the heavy lifting of salvation is done by Christ and Christ alone. So we have been chosen by God to be his children, not out of a sense of superiority, but out of a sense of security. If God has chosen us, there is nothing that can take us away from God Almighty. So we are secure in him. This promise that God will bring justice to his chosen ones is a promise that God gives to his children. God treats you, beloved, with preferential treatment. He cares so much about you. You are his beloved. You are his child. You are in Christ. And so God brings about justice for his chosen ones. What is one of the marks of being a chosen one of God? Well, one of our activities is that we cry out to him day and night. We cry out to him. I realize that sometimes when we pray, we pray just to seek the will of God. We pray to offer praises unto his holy name. We pray just to declare his sovereignty. But Jesus reminds us that sometimes we pray and the best way it can be described is crying out to God. Sometimes all we have is just liquid love that streams down our cheeks. Whatever we are taking to the Lord is something that so wrecks us, messes us up. We don't know where else to turn, so we turn to God Almighty and we cry out to Him. Sometimes your prayer, the best way it can be described, is crying out to God. If you could have fixed it, you would have done so a long time ago. But now you're at your wit's end. You don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't have the strength, the power. There's nothing else you can do. So you cry out to him. And there's no time that's a bad time to cry out to him. So you cry out to him day and night. This morning I wonder, is there anything that you are crying out to God for? I mean, you're crying out saying, God, help me to overcome the sin that so easily entangles me. God, help us as a married couple to conceive and have a child. Oh, God, help me, for this is the toughest semester I've ever had in, in all of my academic life. Oh, God, help me, because I'm about to graduate, and I don't know what's next. Oh, God, help me. Open the door of employment. Give me a place of ministry. Oh, God, make a way where there is no way. God, I need your help. I need your healing. God, I'm just crying out to you. I cry out to you on behalf of my life, behalf of my family, behalf of my marriage, behalf of my culture, behalf of my country. Oh, God, we need you. Oh, we need you. So we're just crying out to you. Do you know what it is to cry out to God? day and night. Here, Jesus asked that first question, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? And the answer is a resounding yes. Our God is not like the unjust judge. You don't have to wear him down. You don't have to wear him out with your coming. You don't have to just keep on pestering the stew out of God. No, God loves you so much. 
He cares for you so much. He is so benevolent, so kind, and so gracious. Will He bring about justice for you? Those of you who cry out to Him day and night, the answer is a resounding yes. Second question. Will He being God keep putting them off? This resounding answer is no. God will not keep putting them off. The unjust judge was putting off this woman left and right every day and twice on Sunday, but not God. God is not like that. He will not keep putting you off. Jesus goes one step further. He makes a bold statement. He'll make sure that they get justice and quickly. He'll make sure they get justice and quickly. It's at this moment, there may be more than a few of you who ask the question, is that a true statement? That God will make sure I get justice and quickly? Let's just be intellectually honest. There are times that you, you've been praying for something for a mighty long time and God hasn't done anything yet. You've been praying for days and weeks and months, maybe even years. You've been asking God to move and he hasn't moved. You've asked God to speak. He hasn't spoken. You, you've asked God to make a way out of no way, and it seems that there's no way He's going to make a way. I mean, do you know what it's like to cry out to God and feel like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and crashing into the floor? But Jesus says He'll make sure they get justice and quickly. Am I the only one in the house that sometimes questions the quickness and agility of God Almighty? Because sometimes I wonder just how quick my God is. Sometimes I wonder how agile He is because it would appear to me that sometimes I can cry out to Him day and night, week after week, month after month, year after year, and it looks as if, feels as if, appears as if God's not doing anything. Yet Jesus said, God will make sure that you get justice and quickly. What does he mean by the word quickly? I think what Jesus is driving at is he is teaching us that when God moves, he moves quickly. He may not move on your time, but he always shows up in the nick of time. And when Jesus moves, when God moves, when the Spirit moves, God moves quickly. Let me give you a couple examples. One is from the Bible, another is just from personal experience. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people were longing for the coming of the Messiah. They wanted the Messiah to come. The prophets proclaimed the Messiah would come. And year after year, decade after decade, century after century, God didn't show up. Messiah didn't come. In fact, the last prophet to speak was a man by the name of Malachi. And after him, there was 400 years of divine silence. Now, I realize there are sometimes you think that God is giving you a cold shoulder, that God is uh, having a, a, a gag order against you. It feels as if you've been asking for something for 400 years, but I promise you it ain't been 400 years. It feels like it, but it really hasn't. But in history, there was a time when 400 years passed and there was no prophet to say, thus saith the Lord. For 400 years, the God who spoke did not speak. But in the fullness of time, God sent his son, 
born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. That the Messiah came and left in a span of about 33 years. We're talking about the God of the cosmos, the God of the beginning and the end, the God who steps outside of, who stands outside of timelessness and steps into timefulness. It is God who came and he came and went in 33 years. And over those 33 years, he had a ministry that spanned only about three years. And he completed the gospel in about three days from Good Friday to Easter Sunday morning. Now we call that a long weekend. And God used it to complete the gospel. What am I trying to say? I'm telling you that when God moves, he moves quickly. He may not come on your time, but he comes in the nick of time. He comes at just the right moment. God knew what he was doing. But in the fullness of time, God sent his son. And God knew exactly what was happening. God is the one who orchestrates time and eternity with perfect tempo. He knows. He knows how to orchestrate all things. He knows how to orchestrate the cosmos. He knows how to orchestrate your life and mine. Throughout the Bible, the people longed for the coming of the Messiah. And he didn't come until he came. He didn't speak until he spoke. He didn't arrive until he arrived. When God moves, he moves quickly. That's true not only in the Bible, it's also true in my life and yours. My wife and I have been married 27 years. We came to Beeson Divinity School. We had packed everything we owned into two small cars. And we came down here and started life together. 27 years have come and gone. And I'm telling you, I know I'm going to sound like an old, old man, but man, time flies. It really goes by fast. We have two children. Our daughter is 22 years of age. Our son is 18 years of age. Over the last couple of years, our daughter had a very serious relationship. This relationship was moving towards marriage. But it was a toxic relationship. I saw it. My wife saw it. And man, we prayed. And we prayed. And we prayed. And it looked like God was doing nothing. It looked like we were heading like a crash collision course towards that wedding day. And I said, God, you're going to have to do something. I don't know what to do. I cried out to him day and night. I'll never forget. Daughter came home on a Friday. And by Sunday, her eyes had been opened as if the scales had fallen off. And that relationship was over. You know, God does a lot of work from Friday to Sunday. Can I get an amen? He does a lot of great work. And what I'm trying to tell you is that when God moves, he moves quickly. He may not move on your timetable, but he will move. He'll make sure that you get justice He'll move in a mighty powerful way and he'll do it on, on his timetable because he knows what's best. When he moves, he will move quickly. So don't give up on prayer. Some of you are one prayer away from a breakthrough. 
Don't give up on prayer. Don't stop believing. Don't stop trusting. Don't stop calling out to God. Don't stop crying out to Him. He knows who you are. He knows how you are. He knows where you are. He knows what keeps you up in the middle of the night. He knows what keeps you stirred up all the time. He understands. He loves you. You keep crying out unto Him. I tell my children, then I tell the church that I believe under every passage of Scripture, you hear the echoing of God with these two questions. Do you trust me and will you obey me? Do you trust me and will you obey me? I don't know about you, but I hear the whispering echo of those two questions even under this text where it is if Jesus is asking us as his followers, do you trust me? And will you obey me? Don't give up on prayer. Don't give up on the one to whom you pray because he is able to do immeasurably more we could ever ask, think, or imagine. He'll make sure that you get justice and quickly because when God moves, he moves quickly. Third question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now that is a peculiar question. Now, those of us who have been in preaching class with Dr. Robert Smith Jr. and others, those preaching professors tell us when you come to the conclusion, you never introduce new material. You don't bring up new material when you're coming to the conclusion. You're trying to land the plane. You, 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 don't, you don't bring in new ideas. And here, Jesus has been talking about prayer. And now, in verse 8, this last question and when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Why does Jesus talk about faith in this moment? Why didn't he say something about prayer? When the Son of Man comes, will he find prayer on the earth? That would make a whole lot more sense to me. Until it hit me that in order for us to pray in Jesus' name, that takes a whole lot of faith. We don't know when he's going to move. We don't know how he's going to move. But we just have the faith that he's going to move. We don't know what he's going to do. We don't know when he's going to do it. We just have the faith that he's going to do it. We just have the faith that he's going to show up and straighten out what's left us messed up inside. In order to pray in Jesus' name, you've got to have faith. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That reference to the Son of Man, His coming, I think that's a reference to the second coming of Christ. The reason I get that is because I think the context leads to that conclusion. In Luke chapter 17, the passage that precedes ours, Jesus is talking about the second coming of the Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes, it'll be like lightning that flashes across the sky. Flash of lightning is spontaneous and it's unmistakable, isn't it? He gives a couple of illustrations. He said it'll be like in the days of Noah. It'll be similar to the days of Lot. In the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking. They were being married and being given in marriage all the way until Noah and his family went into the ark and shut the door. And once that happened, the skies opened and the rains fell. It was spontaneous. It was unmistakable. Same way in Lot's days. In the days of Lot, People were eating and drinking. They were buying and building. They were planting. They were going on life as usual until Lot and his family 
left the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when that happened, God rained down fire and sulfur. It was spontaneous. It was unmistakable. In fact, Jesus says that when the Son of Man comes, don't even look back. For you remember what happened to Lot's wife, don't you? Jesus says, such is the case when the Son of Man comes. So I think that chapter 17 gives us the idea that Jesus has on his mind the second coming. And then in our passage, he gets to the end of our passage. When the Son of Man comes, I think that's a reference to the second coming of Christ. And when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? When Jesus comes back to rescue you, will he find you praying in Jesus' name? Will he find you still clinging and clutching to the faith that you have? When Jesus comes, will he find faith on the earth? What's ironic is that the first question implies a positive response. Will he not bring about justice for his chosen ones? Of course he will. The second question implies a negative response. Will he, being God, keep putting you off? No, he will not. But the third question is open-ended. There's no implied positive or negative response. It's at this moment that Jesus invites you into the story. Hey, when the Son of Man comes for you, will he find faithful prayers on your lips? When the Son of Man comes to rescue you, whether it's at death or on that great last day, when the Son of Man comes for you, will He find you still clinging and clutching and modeling faith in Christ? I think this passage is calling us to pray and to never give up on prayer. If you think to yourself, but I, I don't know how to pray in a good way. I don't, I don't know what, what Jesus expects of me. Once again, context is key. The very next story, Jesus tells a, a, a parable when two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and he prayed to himself. He prayed about himself, but the tax collector stood at a distance, beat his chest, couldn't even look to the heavens, and he simply offered a seven-word prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. How does Jesus want us to pray? He wants us to ask for mercy from the merciful judge. He wants us to ask for mercy from the merciful judge. Friends, I don't know about you, but I don't have a whole lot of confidence in my prayers but I have a whole lot of confidence in the one to whom I pray. I mean, I, I believe that God is listening. I believe that Jesus is able. I have great confidence that when I pray and when I never give up on prayer, that's a testimony that I believe in Jesus and I never give up on Jesus and that he is able to do more than I can ever ask, think, or imagine. So I may not always have confidence in my ability to pray but I hear the call that I'm supposed to pray and never give up on prayer. My confidence is found resoundingly in the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. My confidence is not in my prayers. My confidence is in the one to whom I pray. For the one to whom I pray walked through 42 generations. He stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl. 
This one to whom I pray, he was born in a Bethlehem barn. He was raised in obscurity. He lived in poverty. This one to whom I pray at the end uh, of his, uh, about three years from the end of his ministry, uh, he began a public ministry. He called 12 rednecks. We call them disciples. They turned the world upside down. And this Jesus, this one to whom we pray, he did the impossible. He opened up blind eyes, unstopped deaf ears. He, he was able to walk on water. He fed the multitudes with uh, just uh, a few fish and chips. I mean, this Jesus did some remarkable things. He said to dead Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. And the man came hopping out of the grave. At the end of three years, this Jesus was handed over to religious rulers. He was given to the Roman authorities. And there, Jesus, who knew no sin, became my sin and your sin. He stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem with a crossbeam strapped to his back. He was beaten beyond all human recognition. He went up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, and there he permitted the Roman soldiers to stretch him wide, nailing rusty spikes to his wrists and his feet. They hoisted him into the air, shoved a crown of thorns on his head, pierced his precious side. And Jesus, for a few hours on that faithful Friday in the third decade of the first century, he endured our hell so we may enjoy his heaven. Jesus took our spot. He is the God-man. Because he's God, he has the currency. Because he's man, he's a suitable substitute. It is only Jesus, the God-man, who can dangle precariously on a cross made of wood between two thieves and represent those thieves, represent you and represent me. It is Jesus who died. He's the one calling the shots. He simply said to Telestai, it is finished. He bowed his head, gave up the ghost, took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave, rolled a massive stone in front of it. And for the rest of Friday and all day Saturday, even into Sunday, Jesus was dead. But early on Sunday morning, the dead man began to breathe again. Early on Sunday morning, Jesus got up. In fact, the ladies asked the question as they went to anoint the body on that first resurrection Sunday. They said, who's going to roll away the stone for us? And when they got there, they saw the stone was already rolled away. An angel was seated atop it. The stone was rolled away not to get Jesus out, but to get us in. The angel said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's alive. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Now go and tell. Church, for 2,000 years, we've been coming and seeing and going and telling. We've been coming and seeing and realizing that Jesus is alive. We've been going and telling that he is the mighty Messiah. He is full of mercy. And all we have to do is fall on him and, fall and come to him. And he will redeem us. He will rescue us. He will listen to our prayers. He will make sure that we get justice. It is this Jesus who came and lived and died and was raised from the dead. He ascended to the heavens with the promise that one day I'll come back in like manner. And friend, there's a day that's coming. I don't know when it's going to come, but I know it's going to come. When God the Father is going to look to God the Son and give the wink and the nod, and Jesus is going to stand up and go get his bride. He's going to split the eastern sky. He's going to come down and rescue his church. Gabriel will sound the horn. It wasn't too long ago that I heard a preacher say it like this, that Gabriel's going to start tooting and we're going to start scooting. When Gabriel sounds the horn, we are going to be uh, raptured with him. And, and when Jesus comes, we'll be with him forever and ever and ever and ever. My hope is built on 
on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Friend, your confidence is in the one to whom you pray. So don't stop praying. Don't give up on prayer. Prayer is our desperate plea for communion with God the Father under the authority of God the Son by the power of God the Spirit until Jesus returns to rescue us. Let the church say amen.